Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. This week and next week, I'm going to be talking about trees that have been requested by listeners of the show. So thank you, Bill, for suggesting the topic of this week's episode. That's something that you can do, too. I'm not sure if you knew that. But if you message me on Facebook or Twitter at MyFavoriteTrees, or email me at TreeGuyThomas at gmail.com, then you can suggest your favorite tree to me, and I'll add it to the roster. Or if I just can't find enough material to make it a full episode, then I'll try and tie it in with another related group of trees. All that out of the way, this week I am talking about hemlocks. Hemlocks are a small group of evergreen conifers, only 8-10 to 10 species in their genus, within the overall pine family. These trees are often confused for a poisonous plant of the same name, but they aren't poisonous at all, they're really quite lovely. I love hemlocks. But I'll explain where that confusion comes from, and I'll also be telling some Native American stories about these fantastic trees. You may be familiar with the name hemlock, but associate it with a poisonous plant. There is such a plant called hemlock that was used as a poison in various cultures, back when people were dramatic enough to try and kill each other with poison. Most famously, poison hemlock is known as the cause of death for the Greek philosopher Socrates. Socrates was sentenced to death by drinking poison hemlock for corrupting the youth, among other dissenting acts against the government. And he could have escaped to exile, but he insisted that our material presence on the earth was just a facade that masked the immortal soul, so he willingly drank the poison tea and died. We're not talking about that plant, though. Poison hemlock is a plant in the carrot family, and we're talking about a tree in the pine family. They are not related at all. There's a couple reasons attributed to why the hemlock tree was named after this plant. The most plausible, in my opinion, is that when you bruise or crush hemlock needles, they produce this smell that is reminiscent of that poisonous plant, despite not sharing its poisonous qualities. The other reason is a little more ridiculous, but I'll get into that in the second half of this episode. This is also not the first time a plant is named after something it is not. Oftentimes, a plant is named in such a way as to say it reminds us of this other plant that we know better. But that doesn't really translate well, it just sounds like it's the same thing or related to that thing. For example, the Douglas fir is not actually a fir, they are on different branches in the pine family tree. Eastern red cedar is not truly a cedar, they are in different families altogether. And there is a plant known as ground pine, which is not a pine or even a tree at all. It's a club moss. Club mosses are not even actually mosses. They are lycopods, which I assure you are completely different things. But we are here to talk about hemlocks. This is another tree in the pine family that needs to be distinguished from pines. The easiest way to distinguish what kind of needle tree you're looking at is by how needles are attached to their twigs. I've talked about pines themselves, those leaves are born in bundles of two to five needles that we call fascicles or sheaths. I've talked about spruces, they have these stiff pokey needles that are born solitary on little woody pegs. Hemlock needles are interesting, they are attached to the twig by tiny little threads, almost like a leaf stalk. So imagine a full-size oak leaf, or what have you, whatever leaf you can picture, with a leaf stalk. 
but shrink that leaf down to the size of the end of your finger. The leaf stalk would then be very thin, almost thread-like, wouldn't you say? The hemlock leaf shape itself is referred to as linear, as if you took a short needle and flattened it. It's the same leaf shape we see in a few other conifers, like fir trees or redwoods. The cones of the hemlock are very small, around half the size of my thumb. This feature is also fairly similar to redwoods. These two trees are not related at all, they just apparently happen to have leaf shape and cone size in common. Hemlocks are unique in the way that their limbs are very flexible. They do well in places that get bad winter weather because they withstand strong winds and heavy snowfall. It's like how wise people will tell you to not be like the oak because despite the strength of the oak, it will not bend and so breaks when faced with a strong storm. You should instead be like the willow who bends with the wind so as not to break. That's my wise person voice, apparently. In my eyes, the hemlock is kind of like the willow of the conifers. It's also because of this flexibility that I find hemlocks to be a very huggable tree. I've recently been talking to a few different friends about how huggable certain trees are because I always end my episodes by telling you to go hug a tree. And they would ask me what the most huggable trees are. I don't have a definitive tier list yet, but hemlocks are definitely a top tier tree for hugging. This next fact isn't super related, but I wanted to fit it in somewhere. Hemlocks are also very shade tolerant, meaning they don't need that much sun to grow healthy and strong. So they are able to grow in the darker parts of the evergreen forests where not much else grows. So being able to find them in the dark parts of the woods and how they're so soft, I just get really cozy vibes from the hemlock. Like I said, hemlocks are in the pine family. Within Pinaceae, there are two main subfamilies. Hemlocks are in the subfamily that includes fir trees and true cedars, so those are going to be its closest relatives. A little more distant from the pines and spruces. The hemlock genus is called Suga, T-S-U-G-A, and that word comes from the Japanese name for these trees, and I don't know what it means. I've read in some places that it means mother tree, but I've seen that for other species before, so I'm very skeptical. If you are listening to this and you know Japanese etymologies, hit me up because I'd love to learn this. Of the mere 8 to 10 species in this genus, and I keep saying 8 to 10 because scientists love debating about what makes something a species, half of the hemlocks are native to East Asia. The other half are found in North America, with some growing in the Pacific Northwest and others growing around the Great Lakes and the East Coast. I'm going to be focusing on two of these North American species, the Western Hemlock and the Eastern Hemlock. You can guess which part of the continent each tree grows in. This isn't a trick or anything. I really wanted to pull stories about the Asian Hemlocks, especially since the Hemlock genus comes from the Japanese name, but I just couldn't find any stories about them, at least not translated ones. They're apparently very good lumber sources though, so at least they have that going for them. I know a couple weeks ago in the Alder episode, I lamented about there not being enough stories from indigenous North American peoples about trees. But luckily, some tribes did have stories about hemlocks that are translated and recorded. So let's talk about these two species and what they mean to the people who live alongside them. So let's start with the western hemlock, Suga heterophylla. 
The word heterophylla means different leaves, in reference to the variety of needle lengths along the branches. The western hemlock is native along the west coast of North America, from northern California all the way up to the southern coast of Alaska. And also in this separate inland section of British Columbia and northern Idaho and Montana around the Columbia Mountains, which is really not uncommon with Pacific Northwest plants for some reason. The western hemlock is the state tree of Washington, and it is very common in temperate rainforests like those found on the Olympic Peninsula where I used to live. Like other trees in this region, it gets very big, reaching heights over 240 feet or around 73 meters and can live over a thousand years. Coastal peoples regularly use the wood and inner bark for a variety of products. These trees have a very high tannin content, so they are very useful for making natural dyes. In the modern day, they are still commonly used for lumber for construction, as well as pulp to make paper. In these northwest forests, you often find a healthy mix of hemlock and spruce making up much of the landscape, 98% of the landscape in some places like the Ho Rainforest. And with their cones and needles being so high up, it may be very difficult to tell them apart. But there is one key way to tell the difference between the two if you can see the tops of the trees. Because the hemlocks have such flexible limbs, the very tops of the trees tend to droop down, while these stiff spruces will have tops that stand straight up. And while we know the biological reasons for this, there's also a great story that explains it as well, that comes from the Squahomish people native to the temperate rainforest north of Vancouver, British Columbia. Once upon a time, the creator decided to award the evergreen trees with beautiful cones to hang from their boughs. The hemlock was very prideful and believed that they deserved the biggest cones, and they tried to cut in line to get them. The creator told the hemlock they could not do that, it was rude and against the rules, and so sent them to the back of the line for their injustice. And because of this, hemlock got the smallest cones, and has been hanging their head in shame ever since. Quite frankly, it seems like a good thing that the hemlock hangs its head in shame because that flexibility makes it able to withstand the heavy winds and rains that assault these temperate rainforests for most of the year. The Sitka spruce, on the other hand, ends up with a broken top more often than not because it does not bend in the wind. There's another story that involves the western hemlock I'd like to share. It doesn't really explain anything about the tree, it's more general world building. And it's kind of convoluted and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There are of course different tellings of the story, but I like this one. This hemlock story comes from the Haida people who live on islands off the central coast of British Columbia. Once upon a time, there was no sun in the sky and the world was dark. The raven who had existed since the beginning of time was flying around and came across a house where a man and his daughter lived by themselves. Raven snuck around the house a little and discovered the man had this treasure box. Inside this box was another box. Inside that box, another box. But inside that box was all the light in the universe. The sun, the moon, the stars, everything. So the raven decided they must steal that light. They were so tired of it being dark because they just kept bumping into things. So they thought of a plan. One day, the girl went down to the river to fetch some water, and the raven transformed into a single hemlock needle and landed in the water just as the girl was collecting it. She drank the water and thus swallowed the hemlock needle. Now inside the girl's belly, the raven, who was a hemlock needle, transformed into a human fetus, thus impregnating the girl. 
we're going to ignore the anatomical inaccuracies here and just keep going. So the girl comes back home with the water, but is now also pregnant, which her dad seemed to not question. But after some time, the girl gave birth to this child, the raven now disguised as a baby. And this baby, over time, grew into a child. And as soon as it learned to talk, they asked Grandpa if they could hold his cool treasure box. Grandpa told them no many times, but the child persisted. They really liked the treasure box. And the man really did love his grandchild of mysterious origin, so eventually he said okay. So he opens all the matryoshka-like boxes and pulls out this glowing orb. And he throws it to the kid and says, catch! At this moment, the child transformed back into its raven self and caught the orb in its beak. Raven flew off into the sky and hung the orb there so light would fill the world. I gotta be honest with you, that story didn't have a whole lot to do with the hemlock. It, It was involved, I guess. I just came across it in my research and I thought it was really weird and I really wanted to tell it. There's so many loose ends to it, too. We don't know how the man got the sun in his boxes in the first place. We don't know the psychological trauma this girl must have gone through after suddenly becoming pregnant and then her baby turning out to be a giant raven who was only really there to steal from her dad. Did the dad just shake his fist at the sky in response? I have so many questions. So many questions. Moving on, let's see what the eastern hemlock is up to. The eastern hemlock is known in the scientific community as Suga canadensis, canadensis meaning of Canada. It's also called the Canada hemlock, or if you're in French Canada, Pruche du Canada. But I'm not French, Canadian, or French Canadian, so I'll stick with eastern hemlock. This tree is found from northern Wisconsin across the Great Lakes to New England and Nova Scotia and south from there along the Appalachian Mountains. The eastern hemlock is the state tree of Pennsylvania, and typically grows to 100 feet or 30 meters in height. Some individuals have reached 150 feet or 47 meters in height, which is pretty tall for eastern North America. And it'll live to be around 500 years old, so half as old as the western hemlock, and in most cases half as tall as well. Interesting. I mentioned that one plausible reason why hemlocks got their name was from their bruised needles smelling like that poison plant. The other reason has to do with what Europeans thought of the eastern hemlock when they first colonized North America. So you know how it's pretty common that, at least in the US, folks may see any evergreen or conifer and call it some type of pine tree. Well, apparently in Europe, at least in the 17th century, they did something similar where they collectively referred to evergreen conifers as types of fir tree. When they came to America, they were trying to figure out what type of fir tree the hemlock was, since it wasn't native to Europe, only North America and East Asia. But unlike its western sibling, the wood of the eastern hemlock did not make for very good lumber, and so the British cursed the tree and referred to it as a hemlock fir, basically calling it a trash conifer. First off, rude. The hemlock is not trash. You are. Second, this explanation just seems like such a stretch. Like, I guess it's plausible, but it just feels weird that if they were going to call it some disrespectful name, then why reference a random poisonous plant? The hemlock tree isn't poisonous, and I'm pretty sure they knew that. Maybe that's just what smack talk was like for colonial Brits? I really just think it was because of the smell or at the very least, a combination of the two stories. 
Before the British came to diss on good trees, though, native peoples in the area saw the eastern hemlock as a symbol for conquering winter. This makes sense from a practical standpoint, as the hemlock's flexibility allows it to bend under the weight of snow and recover like it was no big deal come spring. But there are, of course, stories to explain this symbolism, this one coming from the Seneca people, who are from the lands south of Lake Ontario around modern-day New York. There is a figure in Seneca legend who is the manifestation of cold weather, essentially the Snow Miser from 1974's stop animation classic The Year Without a Santa Claus. Cold Weather's name was Hotho, I think. I have no pronunciation guide on that one, so I'm just flying by the seat of my pants. Anyway, once upon a time, there was a brave hunter who sought out Hotho and told him that no matter how cold he can make things, he cannot freeze the mighty hunter. Hotho disagreed with him, and apparently they just spent some time simply arguing about the matter, until finally they agreed to have a test of strength that night. So the hunter went home and gathered a bunch of wood and made a big fire, and he made a kettle of hemlock tea. You can, in fact, brew a tea from hemlock needles. I have not tried it myself, but I've heard that it's pretty bitter. But as the night went on, it got colder and colder and colder, but the hunter stayed by his fire and drank his hemlock tea, and that was enough to keep him warm through the night. And when day came, Hotho admitted defeat. This story is mainly an explanation of how it was proven that man has the power to conquer the harshness of winter. And it really just seems like the secret is a warm fire, but the hemlock tea is important because of that thought that hemlock has the power to withstand winter as well, as drinking it, warm obviously, transfers that power to you. The eastern hemlock has another story, this one about being threatened by a pest. Not like a fun legend, like an oh no, this tree is in danger sort of story. This specific pest is an aphid-like insect called the hemlock woolly adelgid, shortened to HWA. The HWA came from Asia and was first identified within the hemlock range in the 1960s. It appears as this woolly white substance growing underneath the twigs and steals nutrients in a way that weakens the canopy and prevents the tree from taking in enough energy to survive. Efforts to combat this pest include chemical treatments like insecticide, but that's not really economically efficient. More recently, places like New York have tried introducing other insects that are known to prey on the hemlock woolly adelgid, certain beetles and silverflies. For the most part, though, this species itself is not considered threatened. This pest has wiped out some of the biggest and oldest hemlock individuals, but it's not decimating whole forests, thankfully which I think is the best we can hope for, considering how often we see a variety of forces attacking trees in American forests. And I am very thankful that it isn't so bad, because I really love the hemlock. Eastern or Western, North America or Asia, this is a good tree. It's a tree that helps us connect with our history and strength as people. There's kind of weird lessons to take from the hemlock, like don't cut in line, or... Don't let one person hoard things that will benefit everyone else, I guess. Let's go back to the flexibility theme. Take from the hemlock the resilience to withstand harsh conditions so you can bounce back in better times. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. 
If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug, especially if it's a hemlock. 